Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am joined with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hello! Hello, and today we are bringing you another patron select. It is actually part two for Brianna's topic. It is West Memphis 3. So if you did not listen to part one, I will highly suggest you do that. Jessica did a great job and gave us tons and tons of backstory and also walked us through the crime. And a quick reminder, if anyone would like to get last-minute tickets to our Krampus Day event, that is this Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. It's going to be a great time. Come hang out with us. And all proceeds go to Toys for Tots. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and just dive on in. So basically, I'm going to backtrack just a teeny bit because there's somebody I got to talk about that Jessica mentioned last episode, Vicki Hutchinson. We have to talk about her a little bit more. So... Obviously, with talking with little Erin, they need to talk to her too. And in fact, she becomes an informant for the police. And basically, they want to use her to become this piece in their, you know, their game plan and get closer to Damien. Reason for that is because Jessie is at her house a lot. And Jesse and Damien were described as acquaintances. So she's like, okay, this could maybe work. Now, after she meets Damien, she's got a whole story to tell. <laughs> she told investigators that on the night of May 19th, her and Jesse were driven by Damien in a red Ford Escort. Which, fun fact, he had no car. So there's that. It's such a specific, like, description. Like, it wasn't like, I got in, a, I think, a sedan. And I think it may have been red, but it could be, like, a different color. I don't know. It could have been brown. I don't know. Just very, like, a red Ford Escort. You know who lying like that reminds me of? Oh, spoiler. This is a lie. Um <laughs> Uh, Casey Anthony, she gives very, very detailed lies, not saying this woman killed any children or anything. We don't know that, though. Oh, well, I mean, we assume she did not kill any children, saying that for legal reasons. Anyway, and she said they drove to a espat, which an espat, according to Wiktionary, is a Wiccan coven gathering other than the one of, is it sabbats or sabbats? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Okay, I'm dumb. Sorry, guys. While a full moon ritual may be held during an espat, espats encompass coven business meetings, social occasions, and opportunities for merriment. 
And during said espat, they were out in a field outside of the town, and she said there was a group of 10 young people. And all of these people had their faces and arms painted black, and they started stripping and, quote, touching each other, a.k.a. she's suggesting they were having an orgy. And she said some of these orgy participants had names like Spider, Snake, and Lucifer. And apparently this was just too much for her. She was offended. And she asked Damien to take her home, which she did, but Jesse stayed back at the orgy. And after she uh, told them this, on June 2nd, she was polygraphed by West Memphis police. And the administrator, Bill Durham, reported that she was telling the truth. But spoilers, like I said, this is a big fat lie because in 2003, she actually recants this whole statement and the whole informant thing comes out. And what had really happened was she was instructed to get some occult things for her house and kind of place it around. So when Damien would come to meet her and come to her house, he would feel more at home, quote, quote, their words, or feel more comfortable and would possibly open up to her more because they would have similar interests. I mean, the logic behind this is such a stretch. It's like, here, have like a skull and like a Wiccan book and like some basic occult stuff. And then like, uh, maybe he'll confess to murder. The fucking dumbasses. Right. So when she was buying these things, she learned about the occult, like learned some info, you know, and that's how she made up her story. Because people who aren't familiar with the cults, like, you know, you and I, Jessica, I didn't know what an espat was till I Googled it. So that plus the fact they were dangling this $35,000 reward money in front of her and she was a single mom. And remember that she just got fired. <laughs> yes, she just got fired. So obviously that'd be motivation to try to get them some information. And what actually happened was Damien came over to her house, but they just like hung out in, I'm assuming, the living room or something and just talked. She said she did ask him about the murder and he said he had nothing to do with it, that he didn't even know the boys, but he knew the cops were going to try to put it on him because he was different than everybody else and his interests he had, which sadly he was not wrong. I mean, and the fact that they had at this point in time like questioned him like three times. (laughs) So I would be like, hmm, it's the suspect. Yes, definitely. He knew. He knew. And after this, Vicky said, you know, they kind of hung out for a little bit longer and then he left. And she never saw him again. They never hung out again. Like, they didn't talk or anything. So that was that. That must have been like a weird thing for him, like in court to be like, oh, she your witness. Oh, I got fucking played. Oh, yeah. Because also with her crazy orgy story, she tried to be like, he was obsessed with me and kept calling me and blah, blah, blah. But she's like, no. That was bullshit. So, okay. But back to the 90s. So the day after her polygraph, June 3rd. This is important because this is when authorities pick up Jesse Miss Kelly. Now, like Jessica told us in part one, Jesse has a very low IQ and had the mental capacity of a five-year-old, which obviously, keeping that in mind, is problematic anyways. But the way they interrogated him because of, you know, his mental capacity, completely inappropriate. So, first, he was actually there for a good six hours before they started even recording what was going on in this conversation. So, of course, that means we would have only what the authorities say happened to go off of prior. And when talking with Jesse at first, he tells them, like, he had nothing to do with the boys, that yes, he heard about it, but that was pretty much it because obviously, hello, small town. Of course he heard. But hours would go by and we'd have a little bit of a shift in what he's saying. 
And there's a lot of inconsistencies and problematic details with this confession he is going to give. Like, that is just the theme. And I feel like if anyone listens to this while drinking alcohol, please feel free to drink anytime I say problematic or inconsistencies because I fucking wrote it a hundred times. So I'm going to go through some points I wrote in my notes in terms of like, what really happened and all of this shit. So one thing was that he said that one of the boys were choked with a stick, but according to the autopsy, there was no trauma to their neck, so no broken any of those kind of bones to suggest that happened. Another was the discussion of sexual assault. First, he says that the three boys were unconscious and then they were assaulted. But then he changes the story and says they were awake and fighting back. And another big one that comes up a lot with people are talking about it in town and then also in the trial is this castration. And he says that, you know, like he watched it or whatever. And then he was like, oh, but he wasn't sexually assaulted. And then later he says, oh, wait, yes, he was. He's switching all the time. And I'll explain why in a little bit. I just kind of wanted to point out these like inconsistencies because it's important. He had stated that Damien hit Chris Byers in the head, quote, with his fist and bruised him all up real bad. Then Jason turned around and hit Steve Branch. Then the other one took off. Michael Moore took off running. So I chased him and grabbed him and hold him until I got there and then I left, end quote. And that when he returned a few minutes later, he also stated that, quote, then they tied them up, tied their hands up. They started screwing them and stuff, cutting them and stuff. And I saw it and turned around and looked. And then I took off running. I went home. Then they called me and asked me, how come I didn't stay? I told them I just couldn't, end quote. Now, this case has been looked at like tons of times. In Jessica's part, she mentioned the oxygen special about this. And they do talk about the sexual assault. They have a forensics expert look at this, you know, like all the autopsy stuff. And yes, there is evidence of anal dilation in the victims, but basically she was like, this doesn't necessarily mean they were assaulted because she's like, when people die, this happens. So them just being like, yep, 100%. She's like, there's no way you could say that type of thing to kind of start planting that there's holes here. Right. People poop themselves when they're dead. Right. They're sphincter opens Mm -hmm. and also like yes muscles tighten but like i think also like parts of the body relax right and another big thing with these inconsistencies is the timeline so this changes a lot with him he originally is like he was with damien and jason at 9 a.m and then that things happen that early but then detective ridge redirects him to get the, quote, factual statement saying, you know, they met later in the afternoon and then it changes. Oh, no, they called me at this time. And then we were together that evening. Like it changes a lot. And keep this in your pocket. They're like, oh, they were tied up, you know, that kind of thing. They're like, what were they tied up with? He says a rope. And we all know it was shoelaces. Also, if you guys would like to read the full transcript because the YouTube video is not on there anymore, it's in the sources page so you guys can check that out. And I I appreciated whoever did all that because they also added in like highlighted points and stuff like pointing out the inconsistencies. So I thought that was interesting to read. 
Another thing that people like to highlight when looking at this interrogation interview, what have you, is that when Jesse's being shown pictures of the victims, like non-crime scene ones, he couldn't properly ID them and would mispronounce their names, call them the wrong name, things like that. So eventually they're just like, you can just point at them, point out which kid when we're talking about it, aka they need him to shut up because... He's making mistakes that he should not be making. Right. And if that were to go to court, I mean, even when it goes to court, you can tell how leading shit is. Mm -hmm. But like, if they're like, no, 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 that's Stevie, that's Chris, that's Mike, the jury would be like, oh, he doesn't even know. Okay. Right, exactly. And they end up showing him some of the crime scene photos, including of the children's bodies. And it really, really upsets him. I mean, that would really upset anybody. But it's like, keep in mind, he has the mentality of a five-year-old and they're showing him this. It's just, it just pisses me off because people are shitbags. And of course, because, you know, it's like Jessica said, low-income area, he's reminded of the reward money and that, you know, if he gives the proper information, this could really help his family out and, you know, things like that. So they didn't really, I guess, think he would self-incriminate, basically, but he did. And Jesse himself says directly that, quote, I kept telling Inspector Gitchell and Detective Ridge I didn't know who did it. I just knew of it, what my friend had told me. But they kept hollering at me. They kept saying they knew I had something to do with it because other people had told them. After I told him what the three boys were wearing, Gary Gitchell told me, was any of them tied? That's when I went along with him. I repeated what he told me. I said, yes, they were tied up. He asked, what were they tied up with? I told him rope. He got mad. He told me, God damn it, Jesse, don't mess with me. He said, no, they was tied up with shoestrings. And I had to go through the story again until I got it right. They hollered at me until I got it right. So whatever he was telling me, I started telling him back. But I figured something was wrong because if I had killed them, I'd have known how I'd done it. So I hate to do this comparison, but like you think of a small child because, right, that's what his mentality is said to be at. I don't see a child at that age making up this much detail. Just saying. I mean, I guess they could. But even if that's the case, even if like, like, let's say right now I would just sit down with like a five, six year old, right? And be like, tell me a story. They're going to tell me a story based on things that they know, right? Oh, I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm saying he didn't make up that they did this to him. Oh, yeah. Then yeah, I was misunderstanding. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I get what you're saying now. No, it's okay. So obviously, this whole process with this is so problematic. Again, check the sources if you want to read through it all. It's a lot. But police department, of course, didn't see this as problematic. They saw it as their answer because they got a confession. This is the green light to start getting this closed. So just hours after this, they got search warrants for all three of the boys' houses, and they were arrested and charged with capital murder by 1030 that night. So they moved very, very quickly. They literally got the warrants at like nine and then an hour and a half later they're fucking arrested i mean even with jesse like his arrest warrant is signed like a moment before he confesses Mm-hmm. they knew they were gonna get him to confess because like they didn't record shit until he was telling them the story they wanted to hear and then they were like let's just flick this on and then they would still get mad at him when he'd misremember things yeah And then the following morning, they held a press conference because they wanted to announce the arrests. And good old Gary, not so good. He is asked, 
how confident he felt about the case on a 1 to 10 scale, and he answers an 11. Because he an idiot. He is so gross. And so we're going to fast forward to August 4th, 1993. It was ruled that Jesse would actually be tried separately from Damien and Jason, but they were all going to three be tried as adults. This is important. It's very strategic, these assholes. Yes. Then something else pops up that's noteworthy to Pocket. So on November 17th, the police decide to hire some divers and they search this lake that's behind the trailer where Jason and Damien were at. And they found a nine-inch long knife with a serrated edge in the water, just about 50 feet behind Jason's trailer. But this wasn't some, like, revelation because Jason's mom had said, yeah, I threw a knife in there like a year ago because I didn't want him to have it. And they just went for it because they're like, oh, murder weapon. And these fuckfaces also told the media that this was going to be happening. And oh, what happens? They get a perfect picture with the diver with the fucking knife. I feel like that picture is really famous. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's like anytime they're talking about like police work and stuff like that, that always pops up in some sort of like collage. Mm -hmm. So they move on ahead. Of course, they wait some time and bring us to the next following year. So jury selection would begin on January 18th for Jesse's trial. And this would be made up of seven women and five men. And his would be held in Corning, Arkansas. Please note, please, please note, there is no DNA evidence, no nothing concrete to go off of. The biggest thing they fucking have is this confession. That's what they were banking on. So please keep that in mind. Which granted, I know like even in the 90s, DNA wasn't held as highly as it is today, but still. And of course, like once his defense team was talking, they would of course bring up his IQ and that the reason he confessed falsely was because he just wanted to go home. He just wanted to tell them what they wanted to hear type thing. Prosecution would be like, this is bullshit. And basically that his inconsistencies were to kind of like push the blame off of himself with this crime. This is a like the tactic that the police were using is something that they that we've seen time and time again. Like if you look at like the making of the murderer case with like Stephen Avery and Brendan, I can't remember Brendan's last name, but like when you look at that particular case, they basically told him just tell us and you can go home. I mean, Brendan thought he was going back to take a history test. And I, here's the thing. I don't think all police are bad. I actually think that the police do a fantastic job most of the time. But I think in these high pressure cases where there's a murder involved and it's small town, people are like, I got to give people an answer. People are looking at me. They get so monofocused that they're willing to bend rules and protocol to get some sort of answer. They don't care if it's wrong. I mean, they care if it's wrong, but they don't care if it's wrong. And they told Jesse, like, dude, just tell us you can go home and you're going to get money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And because Gary's fucking there, he said that when he had his explanation for why is there so many inconsistencies, he said, quote, Jesse simply got confused. I don't think you get confused if you're confessing to murder. Right. I'm pretty sure you would know what you did. And we have some witnesses that I do want to note here during this trial. So we have Warren Holmes, who was a police interrogation expert. He worked on plenty of high profile stuff, such as Watergate and the JFK and Martin Luther King assassinations. And he would go on to say that from what he saw and what he learned from Jesse's personality, 
was that he would say anything they wanted to hear. Like I said, an eager child because this adult or authority figure, this is what they want to hear. And like Jessica said, because he could then go home and he really wasn't worried about the consequences. He's like, whatever, it's I'm just telling them what I need to so I can get the fuck out. That's what he was focused on, basically. He also said that, you know, if he was truly involved, like his confession says, that it would be very unlikely that he would have had so many of these key details wrong. Then we got another one. His name is Dr. Richard Oshie, and he is kind of like in the same wavelength. He is an expert in false confessions. And during his testimony, he focuses on the fact that the authorities were really doing this, you know, building this timeline for him and giving him details and just this whole suggestion thing. And that they used a, quote, influence tactic to get someone to accept something out of pressure, out of suggestion. So, like, he's just going through the laundry list of what they're doing from the time frame to saying, you know, like, because at one point in the interview, he tries to say, oh, the kids skip school or whatever. And he's like, no, 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 they didn't skip school. They were there. Like, you know, things like that. And then, like, the quote that I said earlier, you know, he'd repeat that back and say, oh, they were at school. You know, that kind of thing. Also, another thing to note, they showed like every fucking thing in these trials to the jury, to both juries. So, of course, with closing, the prosecution has like a school picture of Mike and just talks to them and just, you know, is pulling those emotional strings and also points out how Jesse doesn't even look at them through all this. He's guilty. So he don't want to look at you. He don't want to face anybody. Blah, blah, blah. But later it would come out that that's that's what Jesse's lawyer told him to do. Just keep his head down and be respectful. So he was just doing what he was told to do. It's not anything big like they're trying to make it type of thing. It was just really convenient for the prosecution to be like, oh, look, he's not even making eye contact with anyone. So he's guilty because he can't look him in the eye. And honestly, they use so many dirty tactics with him. Reaching and just shit bags. Oh, it's horrifying. Like, imagine being like he was 17 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and imagine being 17 and not fully understanding the consequences of what's going to happen. Because I think, like, on some level, he understood. Like, I think he was like, he's going to be in trouble. But I still think at some point in this moment, Jesse's like, I'm going home soon. Right. Like, this is going to be over and I'm going home. Yeah. Mm. Then shortly after this, so we're going to jump a little bit and then I'll jump back to the other trial because it technically happened before the sentencing, but it's just easier to explain here. So on February 4th of 1994, Jesse was found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Mike Moore and second-degree murder for Stevie and Christopher. And he was given a life sentence plus 40 years for that. So the people who think that the West Memphis Three are guilty, this is something they bring up a lot. They say that if he was innocent, why would he confess after his sentencing? And why would he also confess to his lawyer? Well, there's a good explanation for both of those. So in terms of his lawyer, this goes back to him not understanding exactly what is happening. He didn't even realize it was his lawyer and he thought it was just another cop. And also on top of that, his dad had to explain what his lawyer's job was for him saying, you know, he's here to defend you. He's here to help you. Please be honest with him. And he was like, oh. So then after that, he's like, you know, he's done his whole spiel and stuff. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. Since that's the fucking case, he's like, no, I didn't do this. I didn't do it. And that's when his lawyer is like, 
oh shit, you know? And then this whole thing with the other cops is that basically they had told him that, hey, if you confess to us one more time, we'll uh, we'll get your girlfriend to come see you in prison. And also, you know, you should probably make sure you got your details straight because if you don't and Damien and Jason get off, they're probably going to come after you. And not only that, they're going to come after your family and your girlfriend and hurt them. He's thinking there's more than just him on the line because technically if he's in prison and they're not, he's safe from them. But he can't do anything to protect his family because they're not. It's just disgusting. Obviously, none of that's fucking true. But that would get him to be like, just, you know, bleh, all his word vomit of all of that shit again. Right. It's just, it's so fucked up because it's like, he's so trusting of these people. Like, they know this about him. They, like, it's not like they didn't know his IQ. Everyone knew that he, like, I think just people interacting with him knew that he had a low IQ and that he was low functioning in the, like, maturity level. And I think that they took advantage of this. And, like, I hope, I hope they would go home at night and be like, man, I'm really fucking with this kid. And they had to have known he wasn't guilty. There's no way. Oh, yeah. I think it was an easy answer and they just all went along with it because, you know, everybody else was. Well, it was the answer that got them to the person they wanted. He was just collateral damage, essentially, yeah. because the let's just put it out there. I don't if anyone disagrees, I don't know how, but go for it. This was a witch hunt for Damien and Damien only. Right. Jason and Jesse were just collateral damage. Collateral. Sacrificial lambs. Yeah, exactly. They didn't care. It was Jerry Driver telling Gary, it's him. He did this. This is satanic panic. He cut the penis of the kid. Like, this is one man and his unhealthy obsession with something he doesn't fully understand literally has destroyed. It destroyed six lives because there are three boys who died and then three boys who had their life stolen from them. 100%. So with that, let's talk about Damien and Jason's trial, because like I said, they were together. So theirs would begin on January 28th of 1994 in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And fun fact, prosecution actually tried to offer Jesse a deal to testify against the other two, but he declined. This is important. So big, big focus here is, you know, there's Jerry fucking running around being like, ah, Damien's part of the occult. Ah, he's going to sacrifice his baby. All this fucking shit to everybody. Ridiculous. And since Jesse turned down the plea deal, they also could not use the confession tape here. Keep that in mind for later. So, of course, what are they going to do? They're going to focus on this occult stuff so much because that's all they can fucking think about. So they have this expert, which when I was hearing about him, I laughed. (laughs) So his name was Dr. Dale Griffins and questionable on the doctor part. Essentially, the easiest way to explain it is he was a mail order PhD. He did not do any actual education. He did not take any classes. He was a retired police officer who apparently gained interest in this during like college protests and stuff, which not the same thing, but okay. Anyway, so he was self-taught and he immersed himself into this and became a quote expert. And I love when the defense is up there, they have this pamphlet and they're like, so you didn't actually do any classes, did you? And he's like, no. And they're like, well, what about for your master's? No. Did you fill out this pamphlet and mail it in? And he's like, no. And it's like, yes, bitch, because that's exactly what it's for. But of course, fucking Judge Burnett is just like, "Eh, it's fine. And then he says something along the lines of like, you don't need education to be an expert witness. You can have a third grade education to be an expert witness. 
And I was like, no, that is the opposite of what that means. Yeah. Like you have to be like credentialed and like, I mean, if you're looking at it from like how we talked about the Scott Peterson case mm-hmm. and how they had an expert witness who came in and literally didn't have enough study time in gestational growth, able to throw him out. And here's this judge is like, he could be like nine a nine-year-old could come in here and be an expert on crayons, and I would believe him. Not the color, I'm making shit up, the colorologist and stuff like that, or like, you know, the molecular engineer or something like that. It was basically like that judge wanted those boys because he, he bought into the whole shit. Oh, yeah. So Dr. Dale brought up the genital mutilation and was like, that is meaning this whole thing is a cult. Even though when you look at the crime scene, there's no signs of a ritual anywhere at all. Yes, we had the full moon. Yes, but fucking coincidence, basically. But he tries to be like, no, this they lined it up with this and all this shit. And he then he's like, also, blood is super important. And he must have taken it because they would have wanted to drink or bathe in it. I'm like, oh, are we Elizabeth Bathory now? Okay. And when they did the search warrants and stuff, none, none, no blood, nothing. So, okay. Not even like a container that had like remnants, nothing. No. But they do eat the container too? Apparently. Now, they had a couple other witnesses I'm going to talk about real quick. One was Domini, the ex-girlfriend slash baby mama. And she was basically like, oh, yeah, he carried a knife around. So that's sketchy. And from my understanding, it was literally a fucking pocket knife, basically, that he carried. It's not like he's carrying a machete. And then she was like, yeah, he would have these conversations with Jason. And when I would walk up, they would just stop talking. Because they talking about another girl. Right? I'm like, okay. Yes, that would totally mean he's a killer. No, no. They're probably talking about Deanna, the girl he likes. You are the friends with Benny's that he knocked up. Yep. There's also a couple girls that take the stand saying, you know, they heard, quotes, Damien talking about performing the murders at a baseball game or something. But basically, you know, it's it's hearsay. It's not like anything that can fully be proven type of thing. And then we have Michael Carson, who just goes into all these gross, gruesome details and just talks forever. And basically, he was like saying Jason confessed to him in prison. But since then, he was on, I think, like an ID special on this or something. I watched some interview with him. And he was just like, look, I was a junkie. And he's like, I thought I was going to get some kind of benefit to go with what they wanted me to say. So I just started talking and it just kind of fell out of my mouth. He's like, I honestly don't know. I was probably high during this. Like, you know, that kind of shit. He literally said, I was most likely high. I huffed gas. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, when he literally says, I don't know what was happening, I honestly believe like he did not have the mental capacity of a sober person ever during this entire time. Yeah. So along with these super credible witnesses, they also wanted to talk murder weapon, which was the knife that they magically found and the media was there magically at the same time. But of course, again, it's like this half-ass quote facts and they're like, well, it could have been a knife, you know, kind of similar or maybe with the same kind of blade, but we can't say that it's this specific one, da 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 It's like, no, because it's not that one because that's been sitting in the fucking creek for a goddamn year. Right. And like rust, mm-hmm. rust doesn't happen in a month. It happens over a long period of time. I mean, it happens in a month, but you know what I'm saying? The amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then another point of focus with them reaching some more is they found a green polyester fiber on the Cub Scout cap. And they said it was, quote, microscopically similar to fibers found in a shirt in Damien's house. And that a red rayon fiber was found near the bodies was also microscopically similar to the fiber of a red bathrobe found in Jesse's home, which was his mom's. Listen, this was all very generic shit. Like, it matched stuff that came from Walmart. That when you live in a small town, there's not many places to shop at. So this really did not mean fucking shit. Right. I think Stephanie Harlow points out the fact that, like, you could have gone into any house in West Memphis and found those exact two particles in every home. And it's just like, I think they just divided it up. I think they they walked in and saw a red robe and went, this matches this. And they saw, like, it was a green shirt that belonged to, like, one of Jack's kids and was like, oh, yeah, that's that one. Well, that and they also put this forensics person on the stand to like talk about this that worked in the crime lab with it and they were like did the person that did this do you think they wore it and they were like no but it was possible that you know it was carried over like fell off a shirt i mean shit it could have even fell off somebody who was helping search for these boys because like also you have to think about the fact that they were in the water for all of this time too this could have been a particle that was in the water or like it was being held down by like sticks and branches like what if another kid had ran through and it fell off their clothes is a public area oh yeah and then she just said because it said microscopically similar in the report it's like like we were just saying it could have been any kind of shirt that was semi-similar you know it's not a reach that it matched like that's not surprising because it's like oh it's I don't know what it was, but it's like, oh, it's cotton. Oh, that's a cotton robe. Like, you know what I mean? It was that kind of thing that this person was pointing out. And then apparently after this, they started, you know, showing some evidence for this satanic motivation for this. And they were like, we found this book in Damien's house called Never on a Broomstick. And it's got all of these highlighted passages and shit. And he's like, yeah, I bought the book used. I didn't do that. And then apparently they're like, we're done. This proves it. And they start talking about his journal. They act like it's got all this shit in it to be like, he is the killer. But I'm like, this is fucking weird. (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing because my favorite part is they think he wrote it like it was his. Right? I know. It was literally stuff from Shakespeare and Metallica. Like it was like Midsummer Night's Dream. And they were like, Can you read this passage that you wrote? And he reads it. And they're like, What is that? And he's like, It's from William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then it's like quiet. And they're like, Then read this one. And he's like, It's from Metallica. Can you tell us about it? I'm just like, Oh my God. Yeah. So they thought they had something good, but it's literally literature and lyrics. It comes from a CD about like injustice with the legal system. Oh my God. Yeah. You can just see on like, I get because people were like, Damien was cocky because he was like, he kind of smirked. But it was like, how ironic that this prosecutor is like, read this journal passage, you satanic asshole. Like, read this. But then he's like, it's literally a passage about how like there's an injustice in the legal system and the court system. And he says it with a smile. And it's happening. Right. And he's like, I'm literally living, like living these lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And apparently they just like to uh, give plea deals. So at this time, the prosecution decides to pull Jason aside and say that, hey, we'll give you a deal if you go ahead and testify against Damien. Hello. Another point that's proving my point with the witch hunt. 
And they say that if he does this, we'll give you 40 years with the possibility of parole after 15. And I'm sorry, this is obviously rhetorical. Why would you give someone who allegedly killed three little eight-year-olds this kind of deal? Please tell me. Because you collateral damage. And they were like, if we offer this to him, like, and that's the thing. If he had taken that plea deal, we would have been like, oh, he's fucking guilty. Yeah. It's like they were like, oh, because if you think about it, if he's getting paroled in 15 years, he would have spent less time in prison than he spent in prison. Because I guarantee you, he would have hit parole and they would have been like, boom, he's out. Yeah. Because I guarantee you the prosecutor and one of those like fucking detectives would have shown up and been like, we think that without the influence of Damien Eccles, he'll be fine. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. This really showed for Jason's character, in my opinion, because he told them to fuck off, basically. He's like, I'm not going to lie about this to save myself and fuck over my friend. Like, no, we did not do this. So that didn't work in their favor. So flash forward to March 18th, 1994. Both Jason and Damien are found guilty of murder for all three boys. Jason is given life in prison and Damien is given the death penalty and to be executed by lethal injection. It's like literally, literally they're being accused of the same fucking crime. And one of these is not like the other. Mm -hmm. Life in prison without the possibility of parole, I can't remember. But I, I don't even think it's that. Like, I think it's just life in prison, right? Yeah, just life in prison. Which means he has the ability for parole at one point in time. Not Damien. Not Damien. Damien is like, oh no, bitch, we gonna kill your ass. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, after this happens, the defense team's like, mm, what the fuck? So they're trying to submit appeals and stuff. But uh, good old Judge Barnett is a fucking cockroach. And he's there being like, nope, nope, nope. We're not doing shit. Fuck this. So luckily, we have a little bit of shift coming. And this is when the docuseries, well, they're different movies, but I called it a docuseries because there's three, of Paradise Lost. And this is what grabs the nation's attention on what has happened here. Because otherwise, who the fuck knows if it would have even gone anywhere because it's a small, small town in the Midwest, you know? And not only did this catch just like everyday people like us who are interested in true crime, it also caught the attention of celebrities. Some note worthy ones being Johnny Depp, Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks, and a ton more. And, you know, when they saw this, they're like, exactly how Jessica and I are acting. What the fuck? Like, what the actual fuck is happening? They're like, this is complete bullshit. At the very least, like, obviously overturning is the biggest hope, but they're like, at the very least, they deserve a retrial because this is horseshit. Right. And Johnny Depp talked about this a lot. They were like, well, why Why did this grab your attention so much? And he was just like, I was Damien as a kid. He's like, I was the weird kid. I dressed different. He came from Kentucky, like a small town in Kentucky. And he's like, I know how people treated me before I got out. He's like, so I know exactly what this circumstance is, you know? Right. And he's like, just because you're different doesn't mean you killed anyone. Right. And then, like, Eddie Vader is from Pearl Jam, so it's like, he understands people misjudging you based on, like, your music preference. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I feel like anyone who at this point, you know, has dealt with feeling like an outcast or not belonging and things like that really resonated with what had happened to him. And they were just like, oh, my God, because it was basically like, if this can happen to some kid in the fucking Arkansas, like this could happen anywhere. So and that was something that was really scary because people at this point didn't realize that was a thing. And so, oh, God, somebody is going to be like adding us saying we're so biased. I tried to not be and I just can't. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm going to take the same stance as like Stephanie Harlow on this. When you're reporting these things, it's like facts have to come into play. Mm. I mean, yes, a lot of cases are taken to court and there's like an emotional aspect to it. But these are the cases that like make Tara and I set up and go like, oh, this seems weird that basically it's just because people are wanting this person to be guilty. Like, I have infamously come out and been like, I don't know if Scott Peterson killed his wife. That's a fucking hot take in this world. I get it. But at the same time, it's like, if time travel doesn't exist and he's he's at the marina, how did he kill her? It's like that kind of thing. Stephanie Harlow makes a very good point in her video on this one, which is when you start looking at the West Memphis Three, like, anti, like, group that thinks that they committed these murders, it's all based on, like, a cult, which, let's face it, the whole reason the United States was made was based on the freedom of religion and our constitution protects the right to have the religion you want. It's in the first fucking amendment. And so the fact that, like, if really, which I don't think he was a Satanist or a Wiccan, that's not even who he was. He had every right to be because that's exactly what our constitution protects. And these are officers of the law who are supposed to uphold this. And they're the ones who are fucking railroading him. In my opinion, whether he killed them or not, they did a miscarriage of justice by not providing factual evidence and they just railroaded him. That's the facts. It does. I mean, it matters that these boys died and it matters because in my opinion, the three boys are really the West Memphis three. You know, Stevie, Mike and Chris, they're really the three that they need justice. But these other three boys, it's the duty of the courts to present actual facts and evidence. And if OJ can get away with murder, saying it on here, fucking at me, I don't give a shit. These three boys, they were 18 and under. Their life was taken away because people just are too intolerant. And that's bullshit. I'm very heated about it. Like, honestly, I didn't know anything about this case really until Tara told me we were doing it. And I am now like, oh my God, this is why other countries look at us and go, Americans are stupid because we don't look at things factually. We look at things with like our emotions. And that's what makes me mad is because it's like, you can't look at facts and go, the facts don't matter. It's what I'm telling you. Like, that's bullshit. Facts are facts. This is not a fake news society. We have to really look at facts and really understand what's going on in the world around us and stop putting our own spin on shit. And I need to stop ranting now. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. We love it. My husband's going to come in and be like, are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) The answer to that question is no. No, we're not. Okay. So like I said, celebrities, all that stuff. What is good about it getting the attention how it did is they took the power and resources they had to help them out and do what they could. There was fundraisers. There was benefit shows. There was walks. You name it. They did everything they could to help get these kids 
you know, the kind of legal team they needed for this because, let's be real, they they needed more than just a DA. Right. And Judge Burnett is like, fuck this, nope. I'm going with what my homeboy is saying. We're going to leave it at that. They actually tried to get him off the case because they said he had an emotional investment at this. And he was basically like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to stay. And he actually put off running for Senate so he could stay on this so somebody else couldn't replace him who might go against what he thinks. I mean, when you really look at that, like that right there tells you exactly what we're saying is that he knows, he knows that if another judge stepped in, it would be overturned because it's ridiculous. And like, seriously, running, I think like running for like Congress or being a represent, like a running for legislation, being a legislator is a prestigious thing. But like, you're not going to do that because you don't want this one case to like get looked at again. That's sus. Mm -hmm. Burnett is sus. Yes. But thankfully, he would eventually get replaced. So that's a really good thing. Very good thing for this case. We're going to flash forward to 2007 because we have some shit fucking happening. Now, fun fact, y'all. There was DNA evidence that had not been tested. Weird. It was a hair. Sadly, no, like, root follicle thingy, you know, so they could fully test it. But they still had enough that they could do it. So they did. And uh, guess what? It didn't match or come in as consistent with any of the West Memphis Three. But it would match somebody else that we have talked about during our time talking about this case. And that would be... Stevie's stepdad, Terry. I'm going to put a pin in that right now. We're going to talk about it a little later. But I just want to tell you that because (laughs) that's the important factor of what's going to happen next. Because I got a lot to say about that, so we're going to wait. Anyways, so along with this, it would come to light that, shocker, there was jury misconduct with these trials. And uh, if you remember, I said Jesse declined to testify, so they couldn't use his confession. Well, they get talking to the foreman, right? And he's like, oh, well. See, I have on these notes that has stuff from that. And the reason for that is because, guess what? We did talk about it. And we did use that in our consideration. He had actually read about it in the newspaper. And he decided to tell the rest of the jury about this. And he was stupid about it because he was, like, bragging about it to people. Yes. And when they got his notes and they're looking at this, he had said, quote, Miss Kelly was the primary factor in their decision making for the sentencings. They were supposed to keep it separate, but we knew this would happen. Which is why they tried them separately, because then it was going to be really hard to get like a clean jury not knowing what Jesse had said because it was televised. Exactly. And when forensic experts would relook at the injuries of the victims, they would realize that the cuts weren't uniform or consistent. And that is important because there's no way that this, you know, this knife that they had could have caused it. So they said these are actually consistent with scratches and whatnot from wildlife. And there was bite marks on the boys, which is important because when they took a look at that, it actually matched up to the alligator turtles that were in this creek. And also, when examining, they were able to tell all of these injuries were post-mortem. So I want to say this. I watched the show and I did not know until today that there was like 
abuse on it. And so I want to say that at the time I watched it, I thought it was a harmless TV show on the animal planet. And it was called Call of the Wild Man. And it was like this guilty pleasure that my mom and I used to watch together. And I thought it was like hilarious because it was about this guy and he was like missing teeth, right? But he would like go and like wrangle all these like deadly wild animals. Well, I when I read the article, I realized apparently he like faked a lot of it. And they actually ended up hurting some animals and actually killing a bat. And that wasn't really like infested in a beauty shop. They like brought the bat in, which apparently is illegal. You can't transport bats for that kind of shit for entertainment. Did not know that. Makes sense now why a lot of bats are CGI. Right. And in the state of Kentucky, he's considered a nuisance officer. But like a lot of the animals that he went to go handle were not nuisance officer related. But a lot of things he handled were where he got his name is his name was Ernie the Turtle Man something junior. I don't remember his last name. But he would like go and get these alligator turtles. And I remember like when I first watched the show, like the first season, they start talking about like how alligator turtles bite cattle a lot that farmers will go out to their ponds and they will find their cows are like bleeding on their bellies. And a lot of female cows who have udders, the turtles will actually go and bite the udders because the way they're hanging down. And I'm not saying that male genitalia looks like an udder, but like if I was an alligator turtle and I eat udders and I'm looking at a naked boy, they don't know that it's a naked boy. They could look at that and be like, it's not the hard tissue and like of their arms or their stomachs. It's a softer tissue. And that is where like the mutilation came in because that's what they would go for. It's my weird facts I know about alligator turtles that that they bite cow's udders. The more you know. Right. (laughs) So this is a lot to take in consideration. That was, I'm going to say mislooked or looked over, but uh, (laughs) you can probably pick up my tone by now. So this would actually go up to the Supreme Court and they would be like, yeah, this is fucking legit. So long story short here, the three would take an Alfred plea. And at first it was Jesse and Damien that are like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And Jason kind of had some reservations with it, mainly because he's like, no, I didn't fucking do this. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like. You're going to plead guilty, but you're going to retain your innocence. But he was just like, I don't want that overhanging me. But then it was kind of like, I'm sure, you know, like his team start talking to be like, you really want to risk not getting out ever? So he eventually got on board with it. And the three would be released August 19th of 2011. They were in there like 18 years. They were in jail for 18 years. Right. Which is like if Jason had taken the plea deal that they originally offered, he would have been in three years less and probably would have they would have found probably some way to get him out early. Yeah. So, yes, we have justice served for those three. But the other three, we don't. We still don't have answers for their loved ones. You know, like it's been so long at this point. There's no answers. But We can go ahead and kind of talk about some theories on what we think. Now, I dropped that bomb about Terry earlier and ran away. So we're going to go back to that now. The thing with the hair, it wasn't just like on the body or on like on one of their heads or anything like that. It was literally inside the knot of the ligature inside. That's a lot harder to magically get inside. Just saying. It's not like it was on Stevie, which would make sense because they live in the same house together that like maybe his hair would get woven in somewhere, but it was on another child. Yep. And Jessica mentioned, you know, there is a lot of abusive behavior with Terry and with Stevie and with his mom and all of that. So that's also something to think about. 
And another thing that was mentioned in part one, he was the last one to see the boys alive. He, of course, tried to be like, I hadn't seen him all day. But then that neighbor was like, "Mm, bitch, no, because we fucking saw you and heard you. But he still to this day maintains that he did not see Stevie or any of the boys that day at all. And that how could he have killed them when he never even saw them? But it's like, bitch, people saw like a whole family saw you walk up the road. Terry was, like, never really ever into... He was not interviewed until this DNA thing came up. They they were just like, meh, meh, you're dad, whatever. And he, like Jessica said, has maintained his innocence still. He refuses to take a polygraph or to give any DNA willingly. There was, like, a PI, and that's how they got the DNA they got from, like, a cigarette butt or something. So they could test it against him. And just the other factors to consider that we've already went over was, like, he had this shitty alibi saying he was with David Jacoby, and, you know, he wasn't by himself. And he's, like, in one of his conversations, he's like, oh, we were uh, we were in the woods together at, like, 6 to 6.30. And David's like, no, because <laughs> that's not what happened. And at 6 to 6.30. The boys are located in a front near Terry's house. So why would they be in the fucking woods? Exactly. And then there's just one thing that Stevie's mom is like, this is what convinces me is that after it happened, she figured out Terry had his pocket knife and it wasn't just like, you know, a basic like Swiss Army knife when it was one Stevie's grandpa had given to him. So it was like, you know, super important to him and all of that. And she's like, I literally saw him. I saw Stevie the day before with it because Terry tried to be like, oh, I didn't I wasn't crazy about him carrying that around because he's so young. So I took it from him like months ago. And she's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. So she's like, what did he take it before he went missing after I saw or is it something else? And we're talking like a very short window because she knows for sure she saw it the day before. And she's kind of positive that she saw Stevie leave the house with it because I'm pretty sure he probably didn't take it to school with him. Right. I have a feeling like he came home and when he was getting ready to go out on his bike, he probably grabbed his knife and put it in his pocket. I I think she thought it was kind of weird when they got the stuff back that the knife was missing, but just didn't say anything. Yeah. And it wasn't even just like on a nightstand or on his dresser. Like he had it put away. It was like away. Right. And it was like not just like a week later she finds it. It's like years later. It might have been months, but I felt like it was years later. And it was like something like she was like, why do you have this? Like, how do you have this? Yeah. Right. And I would think that it would be something also that Stevie died. Like, they probably would have been like, this was something precious to him. And they probably would have kept it nearby so they could remember him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, fucking Terry. And then something that like made me annoyed was when he was doing an interview with Dateline or something, or maybe the ID channel. He was like, if that's even my hair. It's like, if? Okay. Live in your little world of denial. But fuck you, Terry. So moving on from Terry, another strong possibility is that man that we don't know who he is from Bojangles. Because, you know, he came in literally like the police officer. So I have a theory and it's just like totally fucking like... I don't know if I'm watching too much NCIS or what, but it's fine. But basically, I was sitting there thinking and I was like, what if it was Terry and this person because he got someone to help him from out of town? So then the dude would dip and they wouldn't have to sync together for stories. Terry could just be like, oh, I was out doing whatever with David or whatever. Right. So that's way out there and such like a reach. But I was like, it could be. You never know. Could be. Could be. 
I mean, if we're talking like reaches in this case, that's not that. I mean, it literally like Terry dipped out of town. That's the reason they didn't interview him. He was gone for a bit. Yeah. Like, who knows? Maybe that's who he went and met up with. Right. Very possible. Very, very possible. They looked at John Byers, too, of course, because of like all the drugs and stuff. And then there was like this whole thing with his teeth because he got them like replaced. But it was literally like years later. I think it's like years later. Is it wasn't it around the time that like Paradise Lost came out? It was like four years later. It Like, I don't this is obviously speculation, but like maybe he got paid for it or got like some kind of advance. It's true. I mean, if you into drugs, which sounds like they were recreational users, it can deteriorate your teeth. And if you have good health insurance, you can get that shit replaced. Maybe you have the case. He may have had some teeth that needed to be replaced. So he just did all of them. It happens. It happens so much today. People get their teeth capped and filed and there's so much you can do with your teeth. I went to the dentist a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and they're like, yeah, there's all these things. I'm like, I just, I'd want them cleaned. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. And then there was these two other boys that they looked into. It was Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. They suspected them because the day after the murder or shortly after the murder, these boys up and left and moved to California. They like were like, we're going on a trip to California. But, oh, you left town, so you guilty AF. And it's like, Terry fucking Hobbs left town. Why didn't anyone go, oh, he left town. That's highly suspect. No, these two kids that have no connection with these other kids. Oh, they're the ones who killed them. Yeah, they literally, they so they were in Southern California. So they had local PD literally go get them and interrogate them. And they interrogated them for fucking ever. And it, they did the same thing they did to Jesse. And one of the guys basically gave a false confession. was like, I must have blacked out and fucking killed these kids and all this stuff and the cops like yeah you must have but <laughs> they don't take his false confession seriously but they take Jesse seriously okay my favorite no seriously like my favorite part of that because I watched the videotape and like okay the kid is standing on a chair oh my god that scared me because it was like what is happening because <laughs> I didn't see the chair first. he's hot he's levitating I mean because it literally is like a wood paneled yeah. wall and so like the carpet is like the same color and so it was like oh my god where does the floor in but they were like he's standing on a chair and he stands up on the chair and he's like oh i must have blacked out and murdered those kids and the cop is like is that a confession and he's like no but they're like he falsely confessed no he sarcastically bitch slapped you that's what happened Mm -hmm. and then the other kid was like uh i'm hungry and they're like stop lying and tell us he's like but i'm hungry (laughs) and i'm like can someone get the kid a sandwich (laughs) right fuck for real So after this, I was kind of like, where are they now? You know, like fucking cheesy shit. But I was just curious, like, what the fuck? Well, they've been doing because it's been a minute. It's been almost 10 years that they've been out. Yeah. It's been nine years. So when I was reading through some articles and stuff, it said Damien actually got married to this lady named Lori while he was in prison. And the first time they met in prison was when they got married, was at their wedding. And she was very, like, very hands on with, you know, getting him out and justice and all of that. So, like, she's been with him a minute. So Damien is living his best life with Lori. They lived in New York, moved to Salem. Had a bunch of people being like, ah, witches, because, you know, Salem. So then they moved back to New York. And last update is basically they live there, whatever. And as far as Jesse goes, basically he doesn't talk to the media. Like Damien and Jason do a lot of interviews and stuff. A lot of stuff. If you see stuff on like YouTube and whatnot, you'll see their faces. They're willing to talk about this. But like Jesse is like, no, I just want to live. He moved back to West Memphis. <laughs> yeah, he, he went back. I would never go back there. Fuck that. But he went back there. 
And Jason lives in Oregon. But fun fact, you might have heard or watched the movie The Devil's Knot, which had Reese Witherspoon in it. He actually helped with that. He helped produce that. So that's pretty interesting. You know, and he's like Damien and he is willing to speak out about this and talk about it and whatnot. And it said that he wants to go to law school, even though there's like, you know, all the stipulations with his conviction and stuff. But I'm assuming it's to advocate, you know. He can't take the bar and practice. Mm -mm. He could go to law school and prepare for it. And if they ever get enough evidence or I mean, because they're still working towards this, like clearing their name if that ever happens and they get their name cleared he could go take the bar and be a lawyer yeah and i get why jesse just wants like calm and quiet and i think i don't think anyone in west memphis actually thought jesse was guilty so i could see why he'd go back there and people would just leave him alone yeah because again it was damien was the target and all of this the other two were just like oh well you're part of this so whoops sorry But the thing is, at the end of the day, like I already said, this is obviously heavily focused on those three. But the victims, it's just it's so heartbreaking. One, because they were so young. And two, it's like over 20 some odd years that their family has no clue who did this. I do think with like people out there like Paul Holes and Billy Jensen and shows like the Oxygen show where the guy is like going and looking into it. I think that there are enough people out there like that who are interested in these type of cases. And I mean, Terry, like, yes, he's tight lipped, but he keeps making these like big mistakes. Like when he tried to sue Natalie Maines, she didn't even say that it was him who was guilty. She just said there is more evidence pointing towards him than these three. How can these three be locked up? He tried to sue her for like millions of dollars because he thought he was going to get this big payday. And then he ended up having to pay her legal fees. (laughs) Yup, that completely failed because he tried to do defamation and shit. And they're just just like, nah, here's his bill. Bye. So he fucked himself over. It's the truth. They have a hair that matches his hair type Mm -hmm. and only his hair type. And granted, they didn't have the root. But with the technology out there today, there might be a chance that they can look at the clothes of the boys. Yes, they were submerged in water, but like something may have stuck. There's things that they could, you know, they might be able to pull sweat out of the shoelaces. Yeah, they have that MVAC. It's a vacuum, basically, and it can pull DNA a lot better off these surfaces that, you know, they can't really swab. So like in the example, they showed a rock. So I'm really hoping that like, They'll get something and they'll get a hit with it because that's what we're seeing a lot now. We're seeing a lot of these cold cases solved because of the technology we have. So I really hope that their families can get answers. Right. And if it is this like Mr. Bojangles that's out there in the world, you know, he may have been convicted for another crime and his DNA may be in CODIS and they might be able to connect it. I know that Terry has been arrested. I mean, granted, sometimes like in listening to this, like my money was on Jerry Driver for a minute because of like how much he pushed for this. And in a way, and this is a conspiracy theory and it goes no farther than my own mind being conspiracy is that like he created all of this so that he could literally have like a leg to stand on in his pursuit of the occult. And I mean, let's talk about a man who had a great falling down. He got accused of like writing $26,000 in checks that couldn't cash. Like he went to prison for some time and he 
basically declined and was a very unhappy man and he died in 2016. But people like Jerry Driver are out there like they're being ignorant and they're not willing to be taught anything. And that's literally the way where our justice system sits is people's opinions. And it can't be that it has to be based on facts. Like if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Like there's a reason that line worked is because if the glove didn't fit him, how could he have committed this crime? Granted, I already spilled the beans on what I thought about that, but like, it's facts are facts. And the fact is these three boys were murdered by someone and that person is still out there. I mean, just saying, we may find out in five, 10 years that Damien did it. We don't know. I don't think he did. I think he's he's had a consistent story that he didn't do it. It hasn't changed over the years. There isn't a lot of like factual changes, but unlike Terry's story, who changed which changes every five minutes depending on who he's talking to. But I think that I I do think that eventually some piece of evidence is going to come forward and link him. Like people didn't think we were ever going to get the end to like the Golden State Killer. I mean, Paul Holes was retired. He was like, "My, I, I'm never going to get this. And then technology caught up with us. You know, they were able to solve it. So who knows what will happen? Right. Exactly. So there's always hope for that, for sure, especially with like all the resources we have. So I really hope it's while parents are still around and stuff, you know, so they can know. But with that, we are going to go ahead and sign off. If you would like your own dedicated episode, just like Brianna's, you can head to the link tree and go to Patreon. This is one of the perks for our 10 and up patrons. But with that, we will go ahead and see you guys back here on Monday. Bye. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.